0: Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, today's seminar is um, being given by Professor Brendan Kelly, who's a professor of psychiatry here in Trinity College Dublin, and practices in uh, Tala Hospital. And he holds uh, multiple postgraduate uh, qualifications, four doctorates, I think, and a number of number of, of master's degree. And he has written. Um, he has written more books, certainly, than I have, anyway. <laughs> um, and I will do have to recommend his most recent book, which is called Hearing Voices, which is a, a history of psychiatry in Ireland, which is a, a not just a profound book, but actually a beautifully produced book as well. Today, as is fitting uh, of, of the day, um, in fact, this is probably... The most uh, exciting loving I'm going to get today, anyway, is come here and uh, listen to Brendan speak about erotomania in the modern mind. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, erotomania and delusions and the like. And I, I promised Barry two things uh, today. I promised him that I would keep the presentation tasteful and understated, despite it being Valentine's Day. But then, then I thought to myself. What the hell? There are going to be be many, many hearts and and, and symbols of love, and there will be no subtlety uh, whatsoever, um, because we all kind of live in this strange la-la land now, I'm told. um, And uh, if there's a little bit of Emma Stone and a little bit of Ryan Gosling, I hope you'll all uh, forgive me. I also promised Barry I wouldn't uh, harp on about uh, my book, Hearing Voices, The History of Psychiatry in Ireland. So I'm just going to put it there. And I'm not going to mention it again, hearing voices, the history of psychiatry <laughs> and Ireland. not another mention of, of hearing voices. What I'm going to talk about is erotomania, and this is a very rare psychiatric condition, if it is a really a describable condition at all, um, and it's characterised by a persistent delusion, which is a fixed false belief, that one is loved from afar by another person. So it's not a delusion that, that you love someone, or about love in general, it's a delusion if I have erotomania, I believe that I am being loved from afar by somebody else. That's the core of it. Now, it has a long history in psychiatry, and it's it's waxed and waned over the years as a diagnosis. In the latter part of the 1900s, um, it it was incorporated into what was called delusional disorder. In other words, a a state of mind characterised uh, predominantly by a single delusion or a number of delusions without that many other symptoms. And, And uh, there's been persistent interest in this since the uh, 1900s, particularly in erotomania and pathological jealousy. In other words, uh, the belief that one's uh, partner has been unfaithful. And the recent reemergence of delusional disorder as a diagnostic category coincided with uh, newer antipsychotic medications in the 1950s and 60s when people began to believe it might be more treatable. Today, erotomania is recognised as a rare condition a lot of the consideration of it focuses on its relationship to stalking, especially in the context of high-profile cases in the United States. It is, however, interesting to explore for other reasons too, not least because it demonstrates a lot of interesting debates in psychiatry, a lot of interesting points in the history of psychiatry, and the relationship between risk and and, uh, psychiatric assessments. Now, it's a very old condition. It's been described in the work of Hippocrates and Galen, and the first phenomenological description of note came from um, Sir Alexander Morrison, uh, who described a female patient suffering from erotomania in 1840. And he, uh, in, in the manner of the times, he wrote about this in The Physiognomy of Mental Diseases and related it to various physical characteristics back in the 1840s. Crepelin um, also wrote about it in his classic Manic Depressive Insanity and Paranoia, Kraepelman wasn't terribly seized about it as a disorder. He's always cited in papers about erotomania, but when you go back to the text, there's really very little about it there. The, the, the big champion of erotomania is this person, De Clarenboe, who wrote um, about sort of passionate or psychosis. And it's it's, it's De Clarenboe that's most commonly associated with it now. Bloiler and Carl Jaspers also wrote about it. And in 1921, Bernard Hart, an English psychiatrist, described what he called old maid's insanity, and this was in older women who developed the belief, the delusion, that somebody of higher status was in love with them. And he described this as a compensation for the disappointments of life. That at the end of life, this uh, delusional relationship was uh, not entirely ununderstandable. Um, so the core of it is that in erotomania, the patient, known as the subject, develops the belief that he or she is loved from afar by another person. The subject is generally female, although males predominate in forensic samples, so say in prisons or secure hospitals. The object belongs to a higher social class and often seems unattainable. This can be quite extreme, like like a film star, for example. To take a random example, Emma Stone, at the start, if I were to develop the belief that Emma Stone was in love with me, that that could well be erotomania. She's of of a higher status, I suppose. And... she uh, the other person is the first to declare love that is critical and um, now i may return the love in the event that emma stone were to present herself and announce that she was in love with me can i just say for the record because my wife is here i would not return emma stone i would spurn her immediately thoroughly and um, but uh, in erotomania predominantly one finds that um you know the, the, the let us say, Emma Stone, the love that is perceived as coming from Emma Stone is so intense that almost invariably the subject returns this love uh, or falls in love. Um, the onset of the delusion was classically described as sudden, occurring in, in the context of something possibly unrelated. So, for example, I might say I was walking in here, I saw a green car go by and I thus realised that Emma Stone is in love with me. But in real life, it's a lot vaguer than that. It's not, it tends to be not as, not as clear. Um, uh, and the subject will cite far-fetched proof of the object's affections and will paradoxically interpret rejections as covert declarations of love. So if I started writing to Emma Stone uh, many, many times and I received a letter back from a legal firm in Hollywood, I would regard that as her engaging in a dialogue with me. And there's a song about this that's sung by uh, the comedian uh, Otis Lee Crenshaw and there's a line in it that says you call it a court case, I call it a Uh, (laughs) date, whereby uh, rejection is somehow interpreted as being positive, or as proving that perhaps Emma Stone is so overwhelmed by her love for me that she can't admit it and needs to deny it. So so, so all of these things get interpreted. There's really nothing Emma Stone can do or not do that would change my delusion. It's a freestanding thing. Um, So... The delusion of love is generally intense in nature, may or may not be reciprocated. And Crepelin described dreamy hallucinations, uh, which may have a sexual quality. So in other words, the person might have vague hallucinations like voices or tinglings or things like this, but they are consistent with the delusion. They, 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 they are thematically consistent, and they're not necessarily a different thing. They may be the same phenomenon. Um, erotomania may coexist with other psychiatric disorders, and this really reflects the difficulties with diagnosis in psychiatry. Um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. It can coexist, and we had a case some years ago where we had this, it can coexist with Fregoli syndrome, the delusion that different people are a single person in disguise, so that, that, so that everyone I see is in fact the same person dressed up differently. Capgras syndrome, the delusion that someone has been replaced by an identical imposter. Um, or folie a deux which are shared delusions or hallucinations between two people. So um, it can coexist with all of these things. Um, Now, many people with erotomania only come to attention when they engage in disruptive acts, writing letters, stalking, persistent telephoning, or public harassment. And uh, there is a significant risk described in it. The incidence of erotomania is not at all clear. In the 1970s, it was imagined that modern freedom of sexual expression would reduce the incidence to almost nothing. Uh, However, it doesn't seem to have made any difference. In China, they studied uh, inpatients with schizophrenia and found almost 10% of them had an erotic, erotomanic delusion of some sort. But it's very difficult to know what the incidence really is. It can occur in other conditions too, other than psychiatric conditions. Some people with Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, head trauma, and there's an association with alcoholism or alcohol dependence syndrome as well. So uh, psychologically, there are many, many theories. This is really fertile ground for all kinds of theorists. Uh, the condition often arises in loneliness, social isolation, and uh, Craland suggests as well that it's a compensation for the disappointments of life, wish fulfillment, or unfulfilled urges of a narcissistic nature because the uh, the, the love comes from someone of a higher status uh, Treatment generally involves treatment of the underlying condition and. Um, and there was an antipsychotic medication called Pimazide, not commonly used anymore, that was said to be good for delusional disorders, and it is—it is—it is quite good. So that—that's the condition basically. What I want to do now is move on to talk about one example of it, if I may. Um, and this example uh, involves the uh, economist John Maynard Keynes, who lived from eighteen eighty-three to forty-six. He was a uh, a government advisor who was a member of the Bloomsbury group of writers and thinkers and romantics and, and what have you, with Virginia Woolf and Duncan Grant and so on. And he was based in Cambridge. Cambridge based in Cambridge, but he lived a lot in, in, in London, in Gordon Square and Bloomsbury. And he had a load of unofficial roles advisor to the Treasury and confidant of various political figures. And he was also a key player in Bretton Woods. Um, so his contributions in those respects are well known. But what's less well-known is that he became the object of one woman's erotomanic delusions. And it's a really clear case uh, of, of erotomania. Now, a lot of the detail I'm giving you here is from Robert Skidelsky's biography um, of Keynes, which, which drew on his secretary's diaries um, as well. So the secretary had been working for Keynes for some time, but in March 1921, it became clear she had strong romantic feelings involving her her employer, Keynes. There were lots of details in her diary. She said she and Keynes shared special, personal moments of romantic significance. For example, when Keynes handed his secretary some economic journal writing paper at one point, his lovely long fingers fluttered gently over the backs of my hands with an electric touch. On another occasion, he paused during dictation. He was dictating to her and he paused. And she was in that instant confronted with the love of the man that she too adored. Keynes, however, soon broke the magic by wondering aloud, can you remember who is the finance minister in Albania? And the moment was gone. The secretary believed Keynes kindled this love in her because of his passion for her, and he was constantly sending her complicated signals to unravel. On one occasion, while dictating a letter, he mentioned to her that he would be inaccessible to correspondence for the next three weeks, and his secretary assumed, logically enough, that he was whisking her away on a romantic trip. She was devastated to discover, however, that that the ever-complex Keynes was, in fact, taking a sojourn in the desert near Algiers with Sebastian Sprott as his companion secretary. Now, Keynes was a very complex man and had probably had more relationships, more sort of a greater number of relationships with men than with women. But in a complex manoeuvre, a complex cognitive manoeuvre, characteristic of erotomania, she simply reinterpreted this rejection as an affirmation of his love for her. And she said, it was her job to make him a better man. I shall never despair of myself so long as I can see um, clearly what ought to be done. He came back from Algiers and matters got worse. The secretary saw subtle signals everywhere. When she asked Keynes if he wanted a letter cabled at once, he blinked. and He blinked and that meant that he loved her. And she, she wrote in a letter to finally get everything out in the open. Uh, she wrote, My, uh, I do understand you. I, I'm quite sure I do. You see, I must not be broken by your passion, because it would only mean misery for both of us. I am simply not the kind of person you thought I was when you tried to win me that way. But neither am I the intriguing thing I think you thought me this evening. I have been playing your game. And this is her to him, saying she's been playing this game, simply for your sake for I have for you the kind of love that sees the loved one's faults and wants to cure them. So she saw him as in love with her, and she was responding to that uh, in kind. Now, as might be expected, this sudden declaration of love from the secretary placed uh, what I've called in the paper a considerable strain on their relationship. Now, it did a great deal more than that. And um, He responded that uh, her letter had, and I quote him, filled me with more surprise than I can say and suggested she call into him in Gordon Square that evening to clarify the matter. When she called in to him at 6 p.m. on the 30th of April 1921, Keynes told the secretary the whole thing was a disastrous misunderstanding. Things could not go on as they had been. In the face of this clear rejection, the secretary's response was again very characteristic of erotomania. Quote, A celestial rapture seized me, a beauty overpowering all analysis. Then it was that there passed between us that mysterious exchange of looks full of meaning in which all was true. Um, in fact, none of it was true. Keynes contacted her family, said that this woman needed some um, treatment or care, but her delusions persisted, and she wrote to Keynes over many, many years. And he didn't reply. On one occasion he did. He said, quote, I fear whatever I say to you, your imagination would twist into some illusion. The articles in the Manchester garden to which you were referring your letter were not written by me. I have nothing to do with them. She had interpreted newspaper articles as messages from him to her. Unfortunately, the woman's mental state appears to have deteriorated further, and in 1926 she was sent to Switzerland for a cure, whatever that is. Two years later, 1928, however, she was back. But she married what is described as a stern, vegetarian, moralistic schoolmaster who had waited ten years for her. And they lived in blackness until she was well into her 90s. According to the biography, though, this woman stopped acting on her delusions and misinterpretations, but she was never fully cured. She remained convinced until the day she died that something had happened between herself and her employers all those years later, erotomania being, it seems, an especially enduring kind of love. So that's an example of a case that's just quite well described in, in the biography, and it's, it's very characteristic in its... Features and its persistence. The goal of a lot of therapy in these situations is to kind of dial down the volume a little bit on the delusion to stop behaviors happening or stop risky behaviors. But very often, you know, it's, it's like one of those old radio dials. If you dial the volume down to what is apparently nothing, but if you put your ear up against the radio, you can still hear it there a little bit. It doesn't fully go away, but people can stop acting on it. That's one example. We might go for another example. Maybe some of you are familiar with, um, uh, has anyone read this? Enduring Love by Ian McEwen, novel? Yeah. So the Rottermanian fairly commonly features in film and literature, and perhaps the best-known exploration in fiction is this, Enduring Love by Ian McEwen, the novel, and uh, later a, a movie with Daniel Craig and Samantha Morton. And this centres on the story of Joe Rose, who, following a dramatic accident involving a balloon, becomes the object of the erotomanic delusions of another man, Jed Parry. So so Jed develops a a belief that um, Joe is in love with Jed. Parry is persistent in his pursuit of Rose, and McEwan skillfully demonstrates the classic features of erotomania. And the published novel includes at the end a case report of erotomania, written in the style of an academic journal, uh, and gives another perspective on the story, and gives a little bit of follow-up and, and again, the follow-up is very credible in that story in the sense that the, 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 um, the chap ends up in uh, secure psychiatric care and uh, the, the belief un- undimmed. McEwan succeeds in depicting the strength and persistence of the erotomanic delusion, the freestanding nature of the delusions in general. Clear evidence is, taken, is either ignored or taken as paradoxical proof in the novel. And the denouement is a little dramatic, but it's not incredible. And there's another really good portrayal of um, erotomania in this French film. Has anyone seen this one? He loves me, he loves me not. Really super, super movie uh, with uh, Audrey Tattoo. And uh, an interesting case of erotomania, Audrey Tattoo plays an art student. Uh, now, and both of these are a very powerful explorations of it and well worth uh, checking out. Given the strength of delusions in erotomania in general and in enduring love in particular and the protean manifestations of love in literature, film, popular culture and psychology, it is perhaps reasonable to ask, is there a special relationship between love and delusional thinking? If people are going to develop delusions or fixed false beliefs, is there a particular relationship between delusions of love and uh, the development of delusions? In other words, does the particular intensity of delusional love in erotomania indicate a special relationship between love in general and delusional thinking in particular, or does it simply reflect the ubiquity of romantic love in popular culture and discourse? People who develop delusions have always developed them in a cultural context. No one had, no one who is paranoid had a delusion about the internet before the internet was invented. They had delusions about other things, like uh, books or printing presses or what have you. Uh, and it's the same with modes of travel. People having delusions about trains, moving on to having them about airplanes, and so forth. Now, it's possible that it's just the simple prevalence of, of love and talk about love and stories about love that makes it the fodder for, for delusions. Um, And this is possible given the enormous weight placed on romantic love in many cultures. And uh, to divert for a few minutes, in 2007 it came to my attention that in particular romantic literature, you know, uh, romantic novels, does anyone here read romantic novels? Um, I'm getting some nods. I usually don't get any nods. Um, I'm getting someone pointing at someone else, but I won't point out who that is. Well, romantic novels account for 1.2 billion uh, U.S. dollars in sales every year. And uh, romantic, romantic novels, these are like sort of pulp romantic novels. Now I'm not talking about great literature here. Account for 40% of all book sales in the U.S., uh, which is an, an extraordinary market in a sense. So to explore this intriguing field further, and only partly ingest, in 2007 I decided to study, uh, as it were, 20 randomly selected medical romance novels. So I read 20 of these things to determine their key characteristics um, and features of the genre. Among the uh, titles I enjoyed, um, (laughs) The Doctor Who Made Her Love Again, One Magical Christmas, Lyrebird Lake, this is a depiction of general practice, um, Top -notch, Notch Surgeon, Pregnant Nurse, That one kind of explains itself. (laughs) The Greek Doctor's New Year Bailey. So I actually read uh, 20 of these things 10 years ago and uh, studied them. So all 20 of them contained heterosexual romantic plots in which the leading protagonists were both involved in medical work. Most were set in primary care or emergency medicine, including most especially uh, casualty departments and a great number of airborne medical teams which appears to be a very high-risk situation for romance suddenly bursting and for babies suddenly appearing uh, without uh, the plotline developing them at all. Of all the central male protagonists, all of the central male and 11 of the central female were doctors. Eight of the nine other uh, female protagonists were nurses. Male doctors were tall and muscular with chiselled features and personal tragedies in their pasts. The females were skilled and beautiful and had overcome substantial personal and professional obstacles all had neglected their personal lives in order to care better for critically ill patients, many of whom had fatal diseases, but all of whom were covered. The response to... I, this, this, um, this appeared in The Lancet in 2007, and the response to this was, was, was hilarious, because The Lancet um, press released it at the time, and you know numerous newspapers and websites got in touch. BBC Radio 4... Um, uh, the Today programme got in touch and had me reading out uh, some slightly racy passages from medical romance novels at half seven in the morning. And my, my uncle who lives in County Clare heard this and uh, rang me worried. He said, he, said, um, he said, little old ladies would be spilling their tea over themselves <laughs> if you persist with this kind of broadcasting. Um, and th- th- this, this made its way around the world in various different ways. The BBC website concluded, lovesick doctors need training. And this this article was hot and heavy at the hospital. Medical romance flourishes, and websites carry the song Doctor, Doctor, can't you see I'm burning, burning. So, given the um, response to this, um, and knowing I was doing this talk, uh, that last, uh, just there uh, in the autumn, there, I decided to revisit it after 10 years and to read 20 more of these. Um, so over Christmas then I did a, what I'm calling here a careful, objective, and highly scientific analysis, although it wasn't really, really so much scientific, um, of twenty more medical romance novels. And once again, you know, um, they, they, they were the same. Basically, you know, passions were surging, pulses racing, hearts melting, nerves were jangling, babies appearing, fatal illnesses vanished. They were just gone, and the formula was exactly the same. So why, why do these novels persist? Why do they command such a share of the market? There can be no doubt that the simple enduring popularity of romance, the love of love, lies at the heart of the appeal. And against uh, this background, it can come as little surprise, ultimately, that romantic love can lie at the heart of a disorder like erotomania. But is there also another reason for the particular form of erotomania, apart from the simple ubiquity of romantic love in many societies, in particular, Do various combinations of longing, disappointment, shame, and narcissism lie at the heart of the complex psychopathology of erotomania? How can we understand it if we want to? To guide me, and we're nearly finished, um, to to guide me thinking about this, there's a super paper, series of papers by Lisa Bortolotti in the University of Birmingham, Department of Philosophy. And she presents an argument that delusions can serve to diffuse negative emotions and protect somebody from low self-esteem someone from low self-esteem. And this idea might have particular interpretive relevance in relation to erotomania and in particular psychological theories about the purpose and meaning and persistence of these delusions. Why does someone get this delusion instead of another delusion like jealousy or, or paranoid delusions of other sorts? Many people who regard themselves as romantically unfulfilled report feeling lonely, ashamed or even defective as a result of regarding themselves as romantically unfulfilled, as if as if this particular aspect of life has more importance and resonance than others. And I was struck by an essay in the New York Times just before Christmas by someone called Christine Lloyd, who described herself as romantically unfulfilled and feeling defective as a result. And she took to attending what are known as cuddle parties, where you go and there is a sort of cuddling goes on. And uh, she's written a very insightful account of them liking the idea, being kind of disillusioned a little bit by the initial experience, but then on reflection seeing, seeing some merit or some, some limited value in it. It's a very lovely reflective piece. But for many people who regard themselves as romantically unfulfilled, in these circumstances, the delusion of being loved from afar by somebody of a higher status might replace feelings of low self-esteem with the much desired belief that one is deeply loved. And this is Craplin's idea of erotomania as a compensation for the disappointments of life. In erotomania, however, this compensation is a delusion. It's a belief, rather than a simple fantasy or an imagined wish fulfillment, which is very common, presumably. And there are, of course, very many people who feel disappointed with or ashamed by their self-defined lack of romantic fulfillment. Um, but they cope in other ways without developing this uh, delusion. So why do some develop it and some do not? Perhaps the fact that erotomanic love emanates from someone of a higher status um, indicates that when someone is feeling broken-hearted, and this is my only broken-hearted slide today, because <laughs> I'm focusing on romance today, and I want to leave you all on a kind of romantic romantic bounce. Um, but when someone's like this, perhaps the erotic manic love coming from someone of a higher status indicates a sort of overcorrection. So to take a random example, and it's not entirely random, obviously, because I mentioned it earlier, uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone again, and um, perhaps if I were to develop an erotomanic delusion, that Emma Stone um, <laughs> was in love with me in some way. Um, this could represent an overcorrection of this uh, feature in my life. Or it could represent narcissism in the sense that I believe that if Emma Stone is in love with me, uh, that I am somehow a better person, um, that I achieve more in the delusion the wish fulfilment through delusion than I will in life. That, that is what one might do. So this could be a form of narcissism, or to put it, to put it more clearly, a form of being in love with yourself <laughs> and a form of telling yourself that you're better than life has made you out to be. So a disproportionate wish fulfilment through delusion, making up for disproportionate feelings of disappointment in life, filtered through various aspects of personality, experience and circumstances, a generative process that is conscious, unconscious, or a shifting mix of both. And against this background, it's worth speculating, might there be elements of delusional, erotomanic love mixed with what we will call true love uh, in certain romantic relationships, more commonly than is imagined, complicating the picture but resulting in benefit for all? And I explain, for example, how many loving, loved, but mildly unsatisfied husbands or wives in quite good relationships can convince themselves that A, their wife or husband is more amazing than he or she really is, and B, that this newly extra-amazing spouse loves them more passionately than he or she really does. This unconscious erotomanic delusional exaggeration of true love um, may, from time to time, be necessary or even wise in order to bolster a reasonably good but imperfect relationship and so sustain it over time. So how would you know if this was occurring? For example, how would one know if an oxiorious husband... Now, are we familiar with the word uxorious... meaning excessively fond of one's wife. What's interesting is that, to my knowledge, there is no equivalent word for (laughs) a wife being excessively fond of one's husband. To the best of my knowledge, that word does not exist, because the concept simply doesn't occur. Um, In any case, um, how would one know if an obsurious husband, so therefore I'm picking the husband for this example because it's the one I have the word for, how would one know if an exurious husband who genuinely loved his wife and was loved by her to a substantial but not infinite degree developed delusional exaggerations that A, his wife was even more wonderful than she really is, and B, she loved him even more passionately than she actually did? How would anyone know this delusional exaggeration was occurring? Um, in this scenario, the husband, as the person who developed these delusional exaggerations in the first place, would be unlikely to recognise them as such as they would fulfil a chiefly unconscious desire. His wife might notice that her husband was overestimating her love for him, but surely she would be unlikely to make a corrective comment, especially if the difference was quantitative rather than qualitative, and if the delusional exaggeration served to improve the relationship. Ultimately, neither party might be aware of the delusional element in the relationship, and a situation of shared delusion or folly of deux might well develop and persist unnoticed and happily forever. It's in nobody's interest to upset the apple cart on this one. And this finally brings us to the very vexed question of whether all love is delusional to a certain extent. And this might well be the case, but if it is, it just points to the utility of the love delusion at the level of the individual, the family and society. Such a delusion, if delusion it really is, would serve multiple purposes in boosting self-esteem of both individuals, ensuring a certain degree of social cohesion and providing endless romantic themes for our over evolved minds to speculate about in imagination, gossip, literature, media, and, very reflexively today, academic papers. The idea of love as a delusion would also point to the more general ubiquity and utility of delusions, if not love, especially delusions of love, and the intriguing idea that a certain degree of erotomania, far from being the exception, uh, might well be the norm in romantic relationships, possibly mixed in with true love in one guise or other, and serving excellent purposes. Such a conclusion would suggest that the apparent distinction between love and delusions of love is by no means as clear-cut as one might imagine. And while cases of diagnosed erotomania certainly require management and treatment to reduce risk and suffering, perhaps there are elements of erotomania in more romantic relationships than we commonly imagine. And perhaps that is not always a bad thing. After all, delusions persist, but love dies.